What I would like to talk about this evening is faith and I understand that some of you may have some difficulty with the word faith so if you have some difficulty with faith you can think about trust. Now one of the major differences between the Mahayana and the Theravadan traditions of Buddhism is the emphasis that is placed upon faith and motivation. Now probably many of you have read uh, some of these famous stories from the Zen Mahayana tradition of students who go to a monastery uh, pleading to be taught the Dharma and they're left kind of shivering outside the gates or else they're sent to the kitchen to sweep the floors for many years. And this is actually really rather a fine then tradition to ask people to prove themselves, to prove their motivation, to prove their eagerness for teaching. They are, these stories, of course, are one of the features of Mahayana tradition. They are not stories that only belong to the past, but in fact they are very much alive, that tradition is very much alive today. I know for myself when I first went to India and had this rather uh, good idea that I would like to study the Dharma. I rather assumed that it was simply a question of putting in a request and everything else would automatically follow. And I was quite surprised when I went to the teacher in the area and asked for Dharma teaching and to be accepted as a student and he told me that he wasn't interested in teaching me and that I should go away and do something else. And this actually went on for many weeks that I would go and say, you know, of course being a rather impatient Westerner, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. So I, the more he said no, the more persistent I became, uh, going every day to say, please, would you give me some teaching? And he would say, no, go away, I'm not interested, I'm not taking any more students, I don't like Westerners, and all of these things, and I would go back the next day and he would have some other reason why I couldn't study with him. And finally, after many weeks, he gave me a box of noodles. And this was my entrance ticket to the spiritual life, was this box of noodles meant that he was willing to accept me as a student. But of course, then I thought everything else would carry on very quickly, you know, and I sort of assumed that, you know, the following day I would receive some sort of tantric initiation. And instead, for a period of many months, actually, uh, a year, I was um, asked to go away. I would have teachings almost every day, but the teachings consisted of reflections, uh, plus prostrations and mantras and, you know, various other things, but primarily reflections um, about vision and about motivation and about faith and about intention and about my understanding of what Dharma practice was really for. So one day we'd be given a teaching to to go away and to reflect upon the preciousness of the opportunity to practice. And he would tell a story about, the, about a blind tortoise uh, who swam in a vast ocean. And on this vast ocean there would float one golden ring. And every thousand years the blind tortoise would surface. And what were the chances of him managing to surface directly underneath this golden ring so he would get his head through it. It was fairly unlikely. 
And that was also how precious it was to be able to practice the Dharma. We'll be asked to reflect upon our sense of relatedness to all life, our sense of connectedness with all life, whether we could conceive of uh, an underlying bond with all life, when in perhaps the cosmic cycle of existence, any form of life might at some time have been our mother. And how would we wish to live in the world if we could see all beings as at some point being our mother? What kind of compassion, what kind of kindness, what kind of sensitivity would we wish to bring to our life? The reflections were many, and you know, you would be asked to sit for many days just reflecting upon a single quality such as this. And the purpose of these reflections was actually not to, you know, exercise the mind. Um, they were not, the purpose was not to create just a kind of intellectual um, motivation or reason for practice. Rather, the reflections, the purpose of the reflections was to cultivate a great clarity of intention to have a very deep inner sense of our own place in spiritual practice, its meaning for us. The purpose of the reflections was also to cultivate dedication and perseverance and willingness and steadfastness. And actually I can quite frankly say that if you can survive a year of reflecting upon just five or six different, basic different qualities, it really does deepen that sense of steadfastness. Another reason for the reflections was to cultivate vision. And this is extraordinarily important in all Dharma teaching, but specially emphasized in the Mahayana tradition. To cultivate a vision of the Dharma, a vision of practice. It is very easy in this spiritual life to become somewhat limited in vision, to perhaps perceive as spiritual practice as a way of improving ourselves or making ourselves a better person or bettering our own personal lives in some way. And of course, this is part of spiritual practice. It is intended to enhance the quality of our own lives, our capacity to live with wisdom and compassion. But it is also true that the heart of the Dharma teaching is really concerned with liberation, with the end of suffering, not just with the end of my suffering, but with the end of all suffering. And not concerned just with my liberation, but concerned with the liberation of all beings. Reflection and inquiry is to cultivate not only vision, a vast sense of why we do this, but also to cultivate faith in that vision. That just as a thousand people before us, thousands and thousands and thousands of people before us have traveled this path and discovered what it means to be awake, what it means to be free, what it means to live with compassion, so too are those same awakening and same understanding and same insight possible for each one of us. Reflection is to deepen our faith and trust, not only in the practice, but also in ourselves, in our own sense of possibility, in our own capacity to awaken, to live as wise and aware and compassionate human beings. 
So this reflection and cultivation of vision is really a way of preparing the ground of meditation practice. It's a way of laying the foundation, of cultivating an inner readiness and a wholeheartedness and eagerness that then is brought to the actual practice of meditation. Now, in the Theravadan tradition, of course, there is not this emphasis given, or very rarely is this emphasis given, to so much prior cultivation of faith and motivation. The Theravadan tradition is extraordinarily open. No one is asked for any credentials, no one is asked for to have perfected faith or motivation before beginning the spiritual life. Much more, it is assumed, it is really assumed, that if we are willing to sit and be still, that if we are truly willing to be present, to explore solitude, to be alone, to dedicate ourselves on a moment-to-moment level to the practice, that all of the faith and all of the motivation that is needed will simply grow through our own experience. In my understanding, there are actually pros and cons to both approaches to the spiritual life. I mean, in the Mahayana tradition, through the emphasis that is given to deepening in motivation and vision, it is true that many people actually begin meditation practice with a deeply established sense of faith and trust and a very awake sense of vision and motivation and that is very helpful it is very helpful it is helpful in the sense that it alleviates so much the burden of doubt which is truly the heaviest burden to carry in the spiritual journey But I think it is also true that there are many genuine and worthy aspiring yogis who are turned away or who turn themselves away from the spiritual life because they feel that they'll never get the right motivation. They'll never have the the right faith. They feel too ill-equipped. In this path, the way that we teach here and in this tradition, where no one is asked for their credentials when they check in. They just ask for your checks. Um, We actually have an approach of openness. But I feel it is very important to understand that with that openness, there must be the willingness to understand the power of doubt. Because not only does openness allow us to travel this path without credentials, without preparation, openness also introduces us to the whole realm of doubt as it arises on a moment-to-moment level. The faith and motivation, these are not things that you just establish once and never have to think about again. In fact, both faith and motivation are qualities within us that call for a constant renewal. Constant renewal. They are fundamental, both faith and motivation, to deepening in meditation. Now, faith is a difficult word for many Westerners. For some people who have come from a very orthodox or very powerful religious background, faith has sometimes been experienced as something which is imposed upon them by some external authority. They're told to have faith, to deepen in faith, and often that means don't question. Sometimes that is interpreted to mean simply don't question. And faith is sometimes the response we receive in that kind of background when we raise some kind of tricky question about the meaning of life or the reason for tragedy, the reason for suffering. And sometimes in those moments we are told that something greater than ourselves 
and outside of ourselves is somehow making sense of chaos and we should have faith in that force. And sometimes faith encountered in that way is often experienced to be very disempowering which is why for many Westerners coming into the, a tradition of contemplation and inquiry and exploration are often feel very relieved that there is no mention of cultivating um, blind faith, that there is no imposition of dogma or external authority. Often very relieved, in fact, that we are encouraged to question and to inquire. Other people in the West, of course, come from a place in their lives where they have really no religious background at all, and also have very little feeling for what faith is all about. They have no sense of it in their own experience. What does faith look like? What does it do? What does it feel like? What do we have faith in? And when no answer is forthcoming from within, I think sometimes faith is felt to be a rather irrelevant kind of quality. As I mentioned, with faith is a difficult word. We can, in some ways, substitute the word trust. But I think it is important to appreciate just how important this quality is in meditation. Why? Because one of the major obstacles, one of the major challenges that we find in this journey is the quality of doubt. And I'm sure you have all encountered this feeling and this quality. That thought that arises in moments of boredom. Those thoughts that arise in moments when you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Those thoughts that arise in moments when you feel in conflict or intention in your meditation. Those thoughts that arise in moments of disconnection about why am I doing this? Does it really mean anything? Does it make any difference? Does it matter at all? I think we also experience how powerful doubt can be. Not only when it is doubt in the practice, because sometimes when we have doubt in the practice, we're actually saying that we have doubt in ourselves. And I think it is often one of the most paralyzing and debilitating kind of feeling. On the other hand, faith is the quality upon which strength and courage and perseverance is founded. The faith that is needed in this practice is not the faith in something outside of ourselves. It is not a faith which is blind. It is not a faith which is imposed upon us. But the faith that is actually important in this practice is the simple willingness to draw no conclusions. And this perhaps seems very simple and basic. It is our greatest challenge to have the willingness to draw no conclusions, to remain in a place of unknowing, to learn how to be at ease in a place of unknowing on a moment-to-moment -moment level is the most profound expression of faith. I think we experience many, many times, not only in our lives, but in our meditation, how the mind is so ready and at times so desperate, but often so eager to jump out of the unknown. This is not a place where the mind often feels at home. It is looking for ways out of the unknown at all times. To look, looking for ways to jump into a place of knowing. A place where we have labels, 
and have descriptions and have images and have judgments that assure us about our reality. We see at a moment, a moment level actually, how eager the mind often is to compartmentalize, to label, to define, and to describe. Because this is where the self finds security and finds safety. Faith <coughs> is that willingness to rest in not knowing, to let go of our conclusions, to be open to what unfolds. Now it is actually a very specific quality of faith that is needed to be able to rest in unknowing. It is not to say that all qualities or all forms of faith are helpful to us. You think about it, when we come to a spiritual path, we are often looking for change. Sometimes we're desperate for change. We are often looking for answers, looking for ways out of ignorance or out of confusion or out of conflict. And in moments of looking for change, because we do not know always the answers for ourselves, otherwise we wouldn't be looking, we look for someone or something to have faith in who seems able to provide us with what we don't feel able to provide for ourselves in that moment. Sometimes we want to have faith in someone who is for something that seems powerful. And actually, in our world, anyone or anything that seems to possess an answer or solution that we are not able to possess actually appears powerful to us. Thus, we have gurus. Now, sometimes gurus, who are deeply rooted in wisdom and compassion, can be extraordinarily helpful in our journey. But I think also we need to be very aware at times in our own path of our own desire for heroes. To have someone to look up to, to emulate, to aspire to, someone who is an image of perfection. And one meets us so much in the spiritual life where practices or people or techniques or traditions are placed upon a pedestal and made into something sacred. Institutions are made sacred above all else. Now, of course, the difficulty with this kind of faith is, is that the degree that we project onto a person or a tradition or a practice, our own desires, our own needs, the degree that we project perfection, is also the degree that we are open to loss the degree that we're open ourselves to pain when someone or something doesn't match up to our expectation of perfection. It is also true in the spiritual life that the degree to which we look up and outwardly, listen outwardly for answers and authority, that is the degree at times that we forget how to listen inwardly and the degree to which we become blind to our own vision and our own wisdom. One of the great tragedies of the spiritual life is, because, is the way in which doubt can become the vehicle for imprisonment. Now there are many times, obviously, you know, most times, when we need to have trust and faith in our paths and in our guides. We need to have that. You know, when you come here, you need to have some faith in your safety here. You need to have some trust in the people who teach in your environment that you will not be exploited, that you will not be disrespected, that you will not be dishonored in some way. That level of trust and faith is extraordinarily important. But it needs to be accompanied by a similar level of inquiry and questioning. Looking, being very aware 
of the ways in moments of confusion or conflict or uncertainty, the way that we start to become desperate about finding solutions. You know, and this is often so difficult. You know, if you're caught in a moment that feels very challenging, or an hour, or a day, or a few days, that feels very challenging, it, those are the moments when it is most difficult to stay in a place of not knowing. Those are the moments when we so much want a solution, and when those times when we can't or don't seem to be able to find a solution in ourselves, those are the times when we often start to listen excessively outwardly. Can someone fix us? Can someone fix our difficulty? Someone knows something we don't know. And this is a way in which we actually depart a little bit from that inner trust and that inner faith which is so important to this practice. Unfortunately, in, within the human psyche, belonging is sometimes given more value than freedom. Affirmation is sometimes given more value than freedom. And this is something I think we all need to be very cautious about in our own journey. That our desire to belong, to be affirmed, to be accepted, does not take priority over our own quest for understanding and for freedom. Otherwise, it's too easy to go through the motions of the spiritual life rather than to feel that we are traveling our own path. You know, there's a story of, of a bear, a wild bear, who was captured from the forest by a circus and imprisoned in a cage. And soon the bear learned that in order to receive food and approval, what it had to do was how to learn how to perform tricks. So all the weeks the bear learned how to turn somersaults and stand on its back legs and beg for food. And every time it did this, it would be offered the reward of food. And some months went by, and some people feeling so sorry for this bear came and freed it from its cage and took it back to the forest. And at first the bear was so apprehensive, it woke up in the forest and there was no bars and also there was no food, it seemed. And so it stood there in the clearing in the forest and after a while it started turning somersaults and standing on its back legs and doing tricks. Still no food came, you know, and went on and on doing more and more ingenious tricks. After a while I looked around and realized there were all these other bears watching it. And the bear said, what are you doing? And the bear said, don't you know that if you do all this, somebody's going to bring you some food. And the other bear said, you dummy. Don't you know that to be a bear means you must know how to be free and to look after yourself. Faith that is needed in this path is more than devotion. Well, there's nothing wrong with devotion. It can often be a very rich and powerful tradition. But faith also is more than devotion. It's more than looking outwardly and upwardly. It is something that is nurtured along with motivation. And these two are really inseparable, faith and motivation. Now, motivation, I think, is something for us which is a little bit like a chameleon, always changing, always going through some form of transformation according to our own experience, according to our own understanding. Now, people come to the spiritual life. Often, basically, there's two, two reasons. One is dissatisfaction. Might just be lukewarm. Dissatisfaction, you know, things are not terrific. You know, they're not hellish, but they're not that terrific. Sometimes it's a crisis of dissatisfaction. You know, that you have gone through a period in your life where there may have been loss, separation, or 
a crisis of direction and dissatisfaction brings us at times, many times, to this path. The wish to understand the way to the end of pain and sorrow. The other basic reason that brings us to this journey is vision, intuition, a sense of possibility. I mean, not all people come to meditation because they're suffering. Some people come to meditation practice because they intuitively sense a possibility of openness, of depth, of connectedness, of awakening, of deepening in wisdom and compassion. Now, this is the easier motivation, I have to say. The motivation that is based on dissatisfaction is sometimes, it is totally understandable and totally fine, but it does offer more challenges. Because when our motivation is based upon dissatisfaction, this often leads us to set up agendas, programs, of personal change that we want to bring about. This is again, it's quite understandable. It's not, you know, something to be judged about it. Often we're not aware that we have agendas of personal change until we get into the meditation a little bit and we are aware of our own judgments. You know, when we say, oh, I don't like this about myself, you know, oh, I'm too angry, I'm too greedy, you know, or oh, I'm too restless, you know, or oh, I'm too slothful, or if I was only more loving, or more compassionate, or more open, or more giving, our judgments actually show to us what our own agendas are because our judgments show to us the things that we aren't particularly happy about, about ourselves. And often our judgments have within them, or hold within them, a hidden agenda, which is their opposite. I would like to be like this. I'd like to be a different kind of person, you know, more loving, more open, less angry, less greedy, with a different kind of life. Now, when we have these ideas of personal change, we also have then these ideas of improvement. Now, this motivation is understandable. But when our quest for transformation is based upon what we think is wrong with us, then it is difficult. Then what happens is that our understanding and comprehension of faith becomes directly linked to those agendas. The way that that happens is that, you know, if you feel your meditation is going well, you know, you have some calmness coming through, you have a moment or two of peace now and again, um, you know, you manage to go second in line to lunch instead of first, you know, or, you know, you see these, you know, these things changing inwardly, you feel happier and more content. Then what happens in that moment, of course, is faith is absolutely terrific. You know, there's a lot of faith in the practice, and I'm doing so well. You know, my meditation is getting deeper, and I have so much, you know, this stuff really works. You know, I'm really, I'm really at home in this practice. This is the right one for me, you know, just where I need to be. But of course, our faith in that moment is very much linked to the signposts of change. Very much linked to our signposts of change. And of course, we know what happens immediately and so quickly when those signposts disappear. You know, when you come into the meditation room, you know, and everything hurts and worries you and is uncomfortable and, you know, your mind seems to be out to get you and you feel yourself mugged by your own thoughts and, you know, you can't resist being first in line at 
key and you know all this everything seems to be going wrong where is the faith in that moment it often seems like it was never there and now it's of course of course a different line of thought arises you know uh, I need a different style, you know, this is okay for the, some people, but it's not for me, you know, I need different teachers, I need to be in a different place, you know, I need to be in a different kind of center, I need a Buddha image, you know, I need a different kind of cushion, you know, I need something to happen, everything to be different. Or else we think I'm just not the right kind of person. You know, maybe I have other karma, other things I need to be doing with my life. I'm not a spiritual person. Doubt arises as quickly as faith can arise and pass when it is linked to only to experience. I think it is understandable. We see when we come into meditation, sometimes I think the easiest way and the most comfortable way to teach a retreat would be to kind of have a map on the notice board outside, you know, that said day one, two breaths in a row is good, you know, day two, three breaths in a row is terrific, day four, if the body's comfortable and you have five breaths, you're doing really well. You know, if we had some kind of map, that said everything that should happen in a particular order and what it would look like and what it would feel like. And I think sometimes what is very difficult about meditation is that there's no way to do it wrong. You know, so you don't really know how to improve when things seem to be going badly. And neither is there a way to do it right. You know, no one ever comes to an interview and is told, you know, oh, you're doing it all wrong. You know, and if you just do it this way, everything's going to be fine. No one has ever told that. You know, instead you hear just, oh, fine, great, you know, mine doesn't matter, just keep on going. And there is so much uncertainty and so few signposts. Now, of course, this has an effect on our consciousness that would love, actually, for everything to be very certain and defined and laid out. Otherwise, we don't know how we're doing. We don't know how to measure ourselves. We don't know if we're failing, and we don't know if we're succeeding. Faith that is important in meditation practice is not necessarily separate from experience, but it cannot be based solely upon experience. The faith that is needed in this practice is more substantial needs to be something more substantial than just being based upon experiences of gain and loss. Because if faith is based only on experiences of gain and loss, you will constantly be swinging between highs and lows, elation and depression. Sometimes I think it is very important to remind ourselves of what the essence of this teaching and what the essence of this path is actually concerned with. It's not actually concerned with personal improvement, with refining our personal histories, or uh, making our personalities more shining. The essence of this path is not about purifying ourselves, or reaching some goal in the future. The essence of this path is actually concerned very simply and very solely with freedom, with being awake, with the end of all suffering. And this is not to be conceived of, freedom is not to be conceived of as some future state that we will enter or that we will become or that we will gain. What the practice shows us and all that the practice shows us again and again is how to open, how to let go, how to be present with what is, 
with what is already present and possible within this moment. The practice is simply about waking up to what is already here, to what is already with us. Now, I think this is sometimes difficult to remember, sometimes difficult to accept, when our moment-to-moment experience feels kind of murky or mottled or confused, then we get into all of these notions about, you know, I have to do this and I have to do something different and I have to be like this. Sometimes it's hard to trust in those moments of murkiness that underneath and in and through all of that murkiness lies an awareness that is actually crystal clear that is untouched and unmarked by these various small hiccups of the mind. And I think actually that is actually a helpful way to think of mental states. They are simply hiccups in awareness. And not something to become preoccupied with, to open, to be present, to let go. This is all that is asked of us. Every moment that we can do that, actually our sense of trust and faith deepens. It is not possible to measure the worth of a single sitting, no matter how bad or how good. It is not possible to measure the worth of a single sitting. It's not possible in any way to evaluate progress in a practice which is not concerned with going from here to somewhere else, but which is concerned with going from here to here. It is not possible to measure progress in this practice. It's certainly not possible to measure insight. I personally have never met anyone who moved in a linear way in this journey. You know, that you got rid of this, and then you had this, and then you got rid of this, and then you had this. It is not possible to measure the the sensitivity that is contributed to our world, to our own dedication, to doing a single sitting and a single walking in a spirit of sensitivity. This practice is one that cannot be measured. If you cannot measure something, this is where faith is needed. Certainly transformation comes about, changes come about, but you cannot make these into any kind of sign of progress. There is a way of approaching meditation, I think, which is extraordinarily powerful way of ending all of these mind swings and judgments and notions of progress and certainly ending all of these notions of failure. I think sometimes it is useful to reflect upon what difference it would make to begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to freedom. With a commitment to freedom in that sitting, in that walking. What would it begin, what difference would it make to begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to not knowing, to not being ensnared by any conclusion, any judgment, any model, or any image. To begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to not dwelling, to not grasping, but to a commitment to openness. This is what innocence is about the capacity to see anew. Sometimes I think this spirit can be extraordinarily transforming, especially if we see the tendency and the temptation to get caught in our own dramas. And this often happens in meditation. You know, you can get caught in the drama of being a star a meditation star. You can get caught in the drama of being a meditation failure. 
we can all find the ways in which we can get caught in our own personal dramas. This is what happens in that moment of being caught is the way in which we so often define ourselves by our judgments. If we define ourselves by our judgments, we become caught and imprisoned in our own drama, which is often far, far removed from what is possible for us in that moment and from what is tr- from what is true about us. To begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to freedom means to be entangled nowhere, to grasp hold of nothing. It allows us to see the predictable and the familiar patterns of the mind in a different light, rather than being marks against us or marks for us. They are simply bubbles that flow through the consciousness, as do the sounds of the birds, the sounds of the wind in the trees. Not grasping, our commitment to not grasping reveals to us our sense of possibility. Now there is a place for doubt in this journey. Clearly there is a place for doubt in this journey. Not the doubt that is inspired by judgments or by our desire for signposts, because this kind of doubt is the doubt that is paralyzing. But every moment of true doubt is actually a moment of questioning. You know, if we find doubt arising, saying, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Wonderful. These are wonderful questions. These are not paralyzing questions. They bring vitality. They bring energy. They ask us to explore. They are creative. Because those moments of true doubt return us to ourselves, ask of us to really explore what it is we are committed to. Faith is needed to make the journey from what we know to what is not known to us. Now actually, every time that we sit and every time that we walk, And every time that we do a retreat, each one of us actually makes that journey from what we know to what we don't know, to what is unknown for us. We do not know at the beginning of any sitting what will unfold in that sitting. We don't know in any walking what will unfold in that walking. There's nothing predictable about any retreat. Every time we sit, and walk, we make that journey. We begin that journey from what is known to what is not known. Every time we let go, are not caught up in grasping. Every time we let go of our props or our control or our habits, our routine, we make that same journey from what we know to what we don't know. Now in that passage, from what we know to what is unknown to us, Fear is a companion. Fear is an inevitable companion. And it requires an extraordinary depth of faith and trust and courage to stay open within that passage. To stay open to our shadows and to our fears rather than being overwhelmed by them. In an ideal meditation, we would have extraordinary amounts of trust and faith and vision, and then we would let go of things and allow things to dissolve. In this practice, things work the other way around. We're asked to let go, to see what emerges out of that, to have the faith, to have the trust, that what will emerge out of letting go, out of openness, will be all that we actually seek for. It's difficult to have that faith. You know, sometimes we do come into meditation and we think, yes, this is a practice in which I'll see the emptiness of self 
and I'll see the emptiness of all of my constructions of the world, and I'll see the emptiness of individuality. And then, of course, you begin a retreat, and the moment that things begin to fall apart or begin to dissolve or begin to come unstuck in some way, which is what meditation does, is that it tends to dissolve the glue that holds the puzzle or the picture of self together. The moment that things begin to come unstuck, that we feel that we don't have control, or that things don't seem so certain anymore, this panic, this fear, this anxiety, how am I going to put it all back together again? And that's when we see so often all the strategies come out, all the plans and the avoidances and the distractedness. What is actually happening in that opening, what happens in opening, is that we are actually making this journey into what is unknown for us. It is a leap. It is an openness of heart and mind in which all of our strategies and all of our ideas do not help. What actually allows us to remain open is the trust, the faith, that we have the capacity to be awake, to have that commitment to our own awakening, to trust that we hold within ourselves the courage and the steadfastness and the wisdom that will allow things to be let go of, that will allow what is possible to emerge. There's nothing magical about faith. It is not something that's given to us. It's not something that only special people have. Every moment that we renew our commitment to being present, that we renew our commitment to ourselves, in that moment we actually deepen in the faith that is needed in this journey. May all be live with an open heart. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings deepen in faith. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.